remain standing in honor of God's word. We're continuing on through 2 Peter. And this morning we'll look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening in the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to give us illumination as we contemplate this difficult passage of Scripture. I pray that we will have light and that you will give us understanding of how you are working in the world, even today, even in our own generation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me begin with a question this morning, if I could. Why did God send his son into the world? And then I'll begin with an easy answer. And don't worry, it'll get more difficult after that. I might as well just tell you right up front, there's more scripture passages than usual this morning. So if you're taking notes, you may want to jot those down. Um, Some passages are more dense and difficult than others. So right up front, I might as well tell you, this is one of those passages. Um, So I hope you brought your thinking caps, and we will pray for God's help to uh, discern what Peter is talking about here. But let's begin with the question, why did God send his son into the world? Hopefully you are familiar with a great passage of scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God sent his son into the world because of his great love for the world so that through belief in him, none would perish but would have everlasting life with God for all eternity. Isn't that a great verse? I love John 3.16. And that great verse is followed by another great verse, John 3.17, a little less familiar, and I wish it wasn't because that's a great verse as well, though. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did God send his son into the world? In order to save the world. Yet what's ironic is that many Christians think that God sent his son into the world to condemn it when we're told the exact opposite. And in 1 John 4, 14, we're told, and we have seen and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. I wonder if that's our testimony. God sent his son to be the savior of the world, to be the savior of the cosmos. And in John 12, uh, 47, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So even Jesus himself said, I have come to save the world. 
Now, this doesn't mean that every last man, woman, and child are going to be saved. The Bible is clear that there are many like Pilate and Judas who reject Christ. But we have numerous passages that talk about Jesus coming to save the world. And I hope that we can say along with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. God is saving the world. God is reconciling the world. If, if you want a simple outline of the Bible, here it is in, in three words. Creation, fall, redemption. That's a basic Reformed outline of the Bible. God created the world in six days and saw that everything was good, Then he rested on the seventh day. But then man sinned against God. We call that the fall. And God cursed the world and sin came into the world. And not only were people cursed by God, but so was creation itself. But God has promised that he will redeem the world. Creation, fall, redemption. God is redeeming the world. And here's something I want you to see about redemption. And This is from Albert Waters' book, Creation Regained. And I'd like to read from it. And my quotes aren't usually this lengthy, um, but I think what he writes here is, is really good. He says, The redemption achieved by Jesus Christ is cosmic in the sense that it restores the whole creation. He goes on to say, It is quite striking that virtually all the basic words describing salvation in the Bible imply a return to an originally good state or situation. Redemption is a good example. To redeem is to buy free, literally to buy back. And the image evokes that of a kidnapping. A free person has been seized and is being held for ransom. Someone else pays the ransom on behalf of the captive and thus buys his or her original freedom back. The point of redemption is to free the prisoner from bondage, to give back the freedom he or she once enjoyed. Something similar can be said about reconciliation, in which, again, the prefix re indicates going back to an original state. Here the image is that of friends who have fallen out or former allies who have declared war on one another. They have become reconciled and returned to their original friendship and alliance. Another salvation word beginning with re is renewal. Paul speaks of the renewal of your mind in Romans 12 too. Literally this word means a making new again. What was once brand new but has gotten worse for wear is now renewed, brought back to its former newness. Still another is the Greek word for salvation, soteria. Generally has the meaning of health or security after sickness or danger. As a matter of fact, the first English translation of the Greek New Testament published by William Tyndale in 1525, regularly renders this word as health. Christ is the great physician who heals our sickness unto death and restores us to health. Finally, the key biblical concept of regeneration 
implies a return to life after the entrance of death. All these terms suggest a restoration of some good thing that was spoiled or lost. So what is God doing? God is redeeming. God is reconciling. God is restoring. God is renewing his creation. In a word, we serve a God of salvation. And this salvation is cosmic. It's why, in part, large part, he sent his son into the world to save it. Now, I confess that a cursory reading of 2 Peter 3 seems to contradict all of that. It appears that Peter is saying that the world will not be saved, but rather it will be judged, condemned, and destroyed. But I do not believe that's what Peter is saying. And Peter is most certainly not contradicting other passages of Scripture. Peter is talking about a new heavens and a new earth. But I don't think he's talking about an entirely new heavens and new earth. And to understand exactly what he's talking about, we need to clarify some points. And if you're taking notes, here are the three points of clarification that we need. And I warned you ahead of time that that it's involved. The first is, what does he mean by fire when he talks about reserved or stored up for fire? The second is, uh, in the ESV, it talks about the heavenly bodies in verses 10 and 12. Some translations have elements. What exactly are these elements? And then we have this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And we should ask exactly, what is this promise? And I think as we clarify these terms... That will help us to see what Peter has in mind, and we will see that it doesn't contradict these other passages that we just looked at. So let's begin with the fire. Let's back up a little bit to verse 7, where Peter said, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Notice that word, now. Now, I won't make a big deal out of that, uh, but it seems to indicate that the heavens and earth that now exist are going to be replaced, and it seems that there's a time indicator. Uh, Otherwise, why even include the word now? It doesn't seem to add anything. And one, one other verse that talks about the expectancy of a change, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That word waiting could also be translated expecting. We are expecting a new heavens and a new earth. And we find that Greek word in Acts 3, verses 3 through 5. It's the passage of the lame beggar and Peter and John. They're going up to the temple, and we read in verse 3, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... He, that is the lame beggar, asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. That's our word, expecting. So Paul's writing to these believers, and he's saying, You're waiting. You're expecting a new heavens and a new earth. And as we've seen... 
in more than one week, if you've been with us, this expectancy is seen all throughout this epistle. We saw it with the coming of Christ. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, I was at a pastor's prayer breakfast, and somehow eschatology came up, and um, I forget exactly what we were talking about. Um, But I remember talking to one of the pastors across the table, and he said, well, Paul, or excuse me, Peter, seemed to think that Christ was going to come in his lifetime. And I said, he did? Then he was wrong. And you could have heard a pin drop. Now, what's interesting about that, and again, if you've been with us, we've seen that Peter is describing a coming of Christ that they were waiting for. But as I said, I don't think they were waiting for the second coming. They were waiting for a coming in judgment. And I think we have the same connection with the new heavens and the new earth. I think that's what they're, they're waiting for here. But let's, let's think about this fire for a moment. When the Bible talks about fire, it could be literal fire or it could be figurative. Uh, the Bible uses fire in a figurative way in all kinds of ways. And if you're familiar with it, you should know that one of them is judgment, God coming in judgment. I'll give you just a few verses. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. So when the Bible talks about fire coming, often that is judgment. And of course, hell, the ultimate judgment, is seen as fire. And I think there is a present context to this coming in judgment. This is Malachi 4, the very last chapter in the Old Testament in your English version. Malachi says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall be set ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And we have a reference to that sun rising in Luke 178, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 78, and it refers to the coming of Christ. And then in verse 5, Malachi goes on to say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before this judgment comes, Malachi says that God is going to send Elijah. Has Elijah come? Jesus said that Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. And before judgment came, John the Baptist called people to repentance, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago. And he called them to repentance so that they could escape the judgment that was coming. And John the Baptist did warn them about this coming judgment. Matthew 3, 9 and 12 John the Baptist, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, again, that word now, interesting, even now, 
the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He was warning them, even now, the axe is laid, at the, and, he's, and he's ready to winnow the good from the bad. Judgment was coming. John the Baptist warned them. All this to say that we could interpret this stored up for fire as stored up for judgment. And what I want to say to you is that judgment doesn't have to mean utter annihilation. The, the judgment isn't like taking, taking these papers and throwing them in my fireplace and after a few minutes they go up in smoke and, and they're gone forever. But rather this judgment is a purifying judgment. So that's the first thing I want to clarify, exactly what the, the fire was. The second one is elements. What are these elements? Are you still with me? Okay, I hope so. <laughs> All right, we got one. A- amen. Okay, thank you. Elements. Okay, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, there's our word, somewhat translates that elements, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So that word is found in verse 10 and 12. Now, the Greek word here is stoichia. And you're thinking, you're hard enough to understand in English. Now we're going, now we're going into the Greek. The, the Greek word is stoichia. And that's where we have these, the translation elements or heavenly bodies. And we need to ask exactly what is being burned up? And I like what Doug Wilson says. The elements here are not the elements on the periodic table in your science class. You remember that? My high school science class, we had a big, you know, table, poster, the periodic table of the elements. That's not the elements that Peter is referring to here. Let me give you what I think the elements are, definition of stoichia, and then I'll make my argument the elements here are the philosophies or doctrines that a person lives by. We're talking about the doctrines or the philosophies or the teachings that a person lives by. And this word stoichia is used in the New Testament uh, in a positive sense, sometimes a negative sense. Let me give you a few examples. Galatians 4.3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, the stoichia of the world. What are those elementary principles? Not the physical things of the, the world, but the philosophy, the, the teaching of the world. We were enslaved to it. And then Galatians 4.9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, there's our word, whose slaves you want to be once more. So you've been set free from Christ. Why are you returning back to those teachings, those elementary teachings? 
and they can be the teachings of the world or the Old Covenant teachings where people are seeking to be justified by faith. Why are you turning back to that, those worldly principles? Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive to those elemental teachings, elemental spirits. And I think there can be a connection between the teaching and the spirits. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we're told that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, talking about Satan. So the demonic forces do take people captive through bad doctrine. So there can be a connection between demons and bad teaching. But we're talking about teachings. We're talking about doctrines. We're talking about those principles that people live according to. Colossians 2, 20 and 22. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, you submit to its regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. You, you die to those teachings. Why are you going to live again according to those teachings? And then there's others. I won't give you others. But outside of Second Peter, they all, without exception, refer to, again, teachings, doctrines, principles that you live according to. Now, here's something that's really interesting with Strong's Concordance. It has all those definitions of teachings and doctrines and principles. And then when it comes to the two usages in 2 Peter, it says, but here it refers to the material causes of the universe. And I throw up my hands and I say, why? Keep in mind, Strong's Concordance, it's awesome, but it's not inspired. Where do you come up with that definition? When you compare Scripture with Scripture, that is a totally foreign definition. So all of that to say, when the stoichia, the heavenly bodies, the elements are destroyed, they go up in smoke, we're not talking about the world. We're not talking about the trees. We're not talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars. We're talking, I believe, about the principles of this world, including the Old Covenant. This is what Hebrews 8.13 says about the Old Covenant. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. So the author of Hebrews is saying that old covenant, it's ready to be done away with. And why? Because the new covenant is based on better promises in Jesus Christ. And now we are live, we're living according to that. And God is doing away with the old covenant, including the temple itself as the place to worship because we're the temple. He's doing away with the sacrificial system. We don't need any more sacrifices because we have Jesus Christ. He's doing away with the Levitical priesthood because Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's bringing about a whole new order in this new covenant. So that old way of living, even for the Jews, is being done away with. I believe the fire is judgment coming upon the nation of Israel that, re, that rejected Christ and di didn't turn to Christ. And the, and the elements are burning with, with, with fire. 
And then we have one more. What is this promise of a new heavens and a new earth in verse 13? Last point, are you with me? Just help me. Yes, we're with you, Pastor. Even if, even if you're not totally, you can just pretend like, so I'm with you. I know you're on the third point. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting or expecting a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You should ask yourself this question. Where is this promise? I'm glad you asked that question. You know where the promise is found? One book of the Bible, Isaiah, is found in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. But I'm just going to read from Isaiah 65. If you would like, later this afternoon, you can look at 66. But this is what Isaiah says, describing the new heavens and the new earth. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Behold, they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be like the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. That's the promise. Peter is referring back to this passage. This is the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And here's your two basic interpretations. I don't know of any others. If you do, let me know. Either the new heavens and the new earth takes place after the second coming of Christ, or it takes place in A.D. 70 after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, here's the problem if you place it after the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he destroys the last enemy, which is death. Death is no more. But if you noticed, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's still death. It's just that God is saying, but I'm going to prolong their lives. But there is still death. Also notice, this is not the eternal state, because people are still bearing children. And God is promising them. And this is a wonderful pr promise that some of you can clearly see God promises you will bear children. It will not be in vain. And he says that you will see your descendants. So that means you're going to give children and your children are going to give birth. to There's going to be descendants, which means life carries on. And we saw that he talks about planting a vineyard and, and building a house as life continues on. Now death and giving children cannot take place after 
the second coming of Christ. When world history comes to an end, death is done away with, and we live with God forever in our glorified bodies. So it seems to make more sense, and there are other arguments, that Christ is coming in judgment. He's doing away with the old covenant, that teaching, and he is introducing a new heavens and a new earth. With the coming of Christ, we have a brand new world. Now let me back up if I could and show you a parallel that that Peter makes. Back up to verse 5, talking about the scoffers. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So I think you're all familiar with the flood of Noah. We talked about how man's thoughts were only evil continually. And God was patient. He gave him another 120 years to repent while Noah built the ark. But then God brought about judgment on the earth. And what came out of that judgment? A judgment of water. A new world that began with Noah. And now Peter's saying something similar is going to happen, but it's going to be with fire. There's going to be a judgment, and there's going to be a new world. Not a brand new world that's replacing this world that we're standing on, but a new world because of the gospel that Jesus Christ introduces. So yes, we are living in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, a great question to ask at this point is, so what? So what? I think this relates to the person and work of God. A.W. Tozer said, There is scarcely an error in doctrine that cannot be traced back to erroneous notions of God. There's a reason why I began this message talking about God's love for the world, reminding you that we serve a God who redeems, a God who restores, a God who reconciles, a God who renews. I believe part of what's at stake is who God is by his very nature. Yes, God judges sin, but the heart of God is to save. He sent his son into the world to save the world. And this big picture is important because the question to ask is, what is God doing in the world? Every once in a while, perhaps you've even asked this, have you seen some kind of tragedy on television? What in the world is going on? What in the world is God doing? The big picture is God is saving the world. He's redeeming the world. And I pray that overall we have an optimistic eschatology as opposed to a pessimistic eschatology. I wish instead of talking about premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennials, I wish we would ask, is your eschatology pessimistic or optimistic? as God is working in this world. And I think it's important. I used to have a pessimistic eschatology. I, I can still remember on the way out, a guy talking to me that was visiting our church, and he said, you have a pessimistic eschatology. Some people are just blunt, straightforward. I just, no, I don't. I'll get all defensive. I, I do not. I did. 
I don't know how it came out in the message, but as God is working in this world, you can have that pessimistic eschatology that things are just going to go down, down, down. Is God really building his church? Are the nations really going to be disciples, or are we sent on a fool's errand? And I really did have a pessimistic eschatology, and it concerns me because that can affect how we're viewing what's going on in the world. Does God judge? Do nations rise and fall? They, they do. But I want to see God is doing a great work in the world, and that work began with the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a phrase here, the very last phrase that some of you are probably stumbling over, so let me see if I can help you. This phrase ended by talking about we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And some of you are thinking, yeah, pastor, where's, where's the righteousness? Don't you watch the evening news? Where's, where's the righteousness? It's coming. You need to be patient. God is patient. I remember one time I was talking to a seminary student, and we were talking about eschatology, and he said, one of my professors said that there are no passages in the New Testament that talk about a slow growth of the kingdom. He said, my professor said, when the kingdom comes with the second coming of Christ, it's going to be automatic. It's, it's going to be like, I guess like an atomic bomb goes off, and all of a sudden, Christ comes back, second coming, instantly the kingdom is here. He said, there's no slow growth of the kingdom. And I said, oh, I have some verses. Let's uh, maybe consider a few. You recall that when God brought the people into the land of Canaan, he said, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the river to the sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to Euphrates. In a similar way, the reign of Jesus Christ will take time. Isaiah 9, 7. Unto us the son is given, unto us the child is born. And then we're told, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and righteousness, there shall be no end. No increase. There will be no end. Increase. It's, it's going to grow over time. And all of you should be familiar with this. I don't know why his pastor, or excuse me, his professor overlooked this, but the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Remember that? It's the tiniest of all seeds. I mean, all you have to do is to be a farmer, right? You don't even have to be a farmer. Just have any of you ever planted a seed in the ground? Did you ever plant a seed and then said, I can't wait to come back tomorrow and pick some tomatoes? That's going to be great. You plant that seed, and little by little, it grows over time. Jesus, that's what the kingdom is like. Jesus also said the kingdom is like yeast that permeates the nations. That takes time. There's so many other images. Ezekiel 47 says that the gospel is like living water that flows from the temple. First it's ankle deep. Then we're told that it's knee deep. Then it's waist deep. And then you can't swim across it. It, it slowly rises. We have Daniel 2 that talks about the stone becoming a mountain that will fill the whole earth. So where, where's the righteousness? It's coming. It's increasing. It's growing. So it's easy to look at these passages. Well, I don't see the wolf lying down 
with the Lamb. But this is talking about what the new heavens and the new earth is going to bring about. It's talking about what God is, is doing in the world. And as God is working in the world, we continue to fulfill the Great Commission. We're, we're only 2,000 years in. What if we've just begun? What, what if the end of the kingdom is, isn't for 10,000 years? You know what that means, you football fans? We're, we're only in the first quarter. Okay, we're, you say we're way down. It's only the first quarter. There's a lot of time to come back. God is doing a wonderful work, and I pray that we can see it and live according to it and, and be encouraged by it. Let's close in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, even as it causes us to scratch our heads and, and wrestle and try to harmonize different passages. Father, again, I want to pray for this congregation that we would be Bereans, that we would evaluate everything we hear by the scriptures. Father, I pray that this congregation would have a love for your scriptures and they would have an eagerness, and I pray that they would examine everything that's said, even what I say. And if they have any questions, may they feel free to ask, ask me because we are living according to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.